This message comes from NPR sponsor, the Capital One Venture X Card. Earn unlimited 2X miles on everything you buy. Plus, get access to a $300 annual credit for bookings through Capital One Travel. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. Details at CapitalOne.com. Felix, did you watch the Super Bowl? Yes, I did. I was raised by a 49er fan. My dad's a 49er fan going back to the 1950s in San Francisco. So I had to watch and it was a heartbreaker. Yeah, I will share in the condolences um, because I grew up in Hawaii where you can just kind of pick whatever team you want to root for. <laughs> right. Uh, right. I, was a, I was a kid during the Joe Montana, Jerry Rice era. So, you know, <clears throat> pretty much they got their hooks into me there. Although as a Philadelphia resident now, I, I had a, a heartbreak uh, that my Eagles were not not there this year. But what can you do? Complicated allegiances in the sports world. Yeah, it, you know, interesting to think about a game in which all ears were locked on to alums of the Tiny Desk, right? Taylor Swift and Usher. <laughs> right. Tiny Deskers. Right. I didn't think about that. You're absolutely right. Let's get this started. You're listening to New Music Friday for February 16th, 2024. My name is Nate Chenen. I'm the editorial director at WRTI in Philadelphia. And I'm joined today by Felix Contreras, the host of Alt Latino and an NPR music legend. <laughs> hey, Felix. What's happening, man? I'm excited to dig in with you. This week, we celebrated the 100th anniversary of George Gershwin's Rhapsody in Blue. Later in this show, uh, I will be joined by NPR's Tom Heisinger to talk about the piece and some of the insights that each of us has gleaned from conferring with a handful of, of artists. Uh, you'll want to stick around for that. We are going to start with an album that Felix brought to the table. Uh, this is a good one. Gabby Moreno, Dusk. You know, Nate, when I first heard Gabby, what struck me was the deep blues in her vocals, okay? Mm. She's from Guatemala. She spent her formative years there. She's been an alt-Latino favorite since I first heard her on some CD that made its way to my desk way back, in, I don't know, 2010, 2012, something like that. You know, I've spoken to her a number of times, and she says that she was infatuated by the blues while she was growing up. She happened to hear some, and I think she heard some Billie Holiday uh, some some of the great blues vocalists. And ever since then, she has like explored that, but also she's explored her Latinidad, her sense of being a Latina through the blues. And this record is, is like, I think, the pinnacle of everything that she's done on that end. Yeah. It's, it's interesting to think about the blues as it expresses itself in a, a, a number of different ways on this album. And I've seen... Dusk referred to as her Americana record. Um, and I think it, it's useful to use that term if we are prepared to expand the frame because it's sort of a Pan-Americana <laughs> record, yeah. you know? Um, there is, there is you know, the influence of, of her homeland as well as a really fully expressed blues and, and folk and singer-songwriter My first experience with Gabby Moreno as a live performer actually came at NPR Music's 10th anniversary celebration at the 930 Club. Right. And I, I have a very distinct memory of her uh, performing alone to a crowd that 
you know, up until the moment she stepped out, didn't know she'd be there. And she was just magical, you know. And as I was listening to Dusk, I, I've heard it a few times now. One word that popped into my head that I want to unpack a bit is charming. And that is a word that can sound a little patronizing or, or sort of belittling. But, I, you know, when I say unpack, there's something about Gabby that makes me think of the meaning of that word charm that involves casting a spell, you know? Right. It involves, like, magic and complete command of, like, just bringing an audience, bringing anyone who encounters her under the same spell. It's, it's enchanting, you know? And I, I think that's, that just shines through, I think, in really any circumstance, but I, I really hear it on this album. You nailed it. That's something I never even thought about before. And it's such a great description of the way that she does. She cast a spell that night at the 930 Club. She mm -hmm. killed. She laid everybody out with just her and her guitar. And then on the successive records that she's done, and she's had a lot of different ways to express herself. She did an album with Van Dyke Parks that was lushly orchestrated and all, like, very, very involved. This is very, very bare bones. And a sonic treat, like, lots of reverb, lots of effects on her vocals. I think right off the top, the very first one, mm. uh, Let It Fade, I think that it, it sets a nice groundwork, and I'm sure that it was intentional because all the sonic stuff I'm talking about, the production value and then the sparseness of it, but then also the passion and the intensity of her lyrics, th it really sets the ground for what you're going to hear for the rest of the record. Let It Fade is the lead track off of Dusk. Um, I'm so struck by the, the closeness, the intimacy of the vocals on this album. Um, that's a perfect example. And it is in dialogue, I think, with some of the other currents that we hear in the sort of singer-songwriter lane. Um, our editor, uh, Jacob Gans, reminded me, and I watched the Grammy premiere ceremony, but Gabby was one of the presenters and she shared a stage with Billie Eilish, who won an award for her song, What Was I Made For, from Barbie. And, you know, I think it would be a stretch to say that they are engaged <laughs> in the, the same practice, but there is a certain kind of hushed clarity that you get from, from both of those singers and a handful of others working today. Uh, you know, it feels very contemporary, but it also harks back to, you know, music that we know from the 60s and the 50s. Moving on, there are a handful of really good jazz albums out today. And Felix, you know me, I, I'm not going to get on this show and not bring some jazz. <laughs> so, um, so we count one, on it, man. Yeah, yeah. There, there's one that I really want to hear what you think about because um, it's an interesting record. There's a clarinetist named Mike McGinnis and he has an ensemble that he calls um, Plus Nine, Mike McGinnis Plus Nine. The album is Outing, subtitle is Road Trip Two. This is a clarinetist and arranger 
who is working with an idea that he can trace back to the, the very important and often overlooked mid-century clarinetist and composer Bill Smith. Um, and I, I believe he was a, a mentor of sorts to Mike. Um, the, the previous album by this band, Road Trip One, um, actually included a um, concerto for clarinet and combo that Bill Smith composed in 1956. So there was a, a, a literal sort of repertory angle. Um, that was kind of the, the germ of this ensemble. But, you know, as happens with great ensembles, I think after Mike got the the band together and recorded that first album, he thought, man, this this really has some juice. I want to keep this thing going. So on this album, he composed a number of new pieces for the group and also included one Bill Smith composition, Transformations. Felix, what did you think of this? I'm always pleased to hear clarinets, man, playing jazz. Yeah. You know, it's usually, you know, it's not the kind of instrument that's going to be out in front of a big orchestra big band with the exception of Benny Goodman of course right mm -hmm. but uh, I think that for the most part it's got such a nice light timbre to it right I think that that this record captures that and then also continues that tradition because it's just it's it's it reminds me of like I don't know I, I don't like to use sports um, metaphors but it's like a, like a middleweight fighter right mm. they're fast and they're, they're moving a lot and I think that that's what the clarinet does I, I always appreciate the hearing it in the, any kind of ensemble well you know your invocation of Benny Goodman you know and, and you could throw in someone like Artie Shaw too from that era yeah. that, that's instructive because um, we think of of Goodman primarily at the helm of his big band you know the Benny Goodman Orchestra and this group is like a little orchestra, you know. Right. Um, there's, you know, it's clarinet, trumpet, alto, tenor, and baritone saxophones, trombone, French horn, piano, bass, and drums. So, so you really have. Uh, there's no doubling of the parts, but you really have like a full woodwind section, and you know, and then a couple of brass um, to even it out. And McGinnis has the. He really understands how to orchestrate, how to arrange for this, you know, this combination of players. And it also is, it's important who the players are, you know. Um, and so he's enlisted some really wonderful improvisers like the alto saxophonist Caroline Davis and the trombonist Brian Dry. Uh, there's a, a great pianist, Jacob Sachs, the drummer Vinnie Sparazza. So these, these are all like very busy uh, members of the New York jazz scene so um, they're, they're kind of able to handle anything tossed at them. Wasn't there a clarinet in the Chico Hamilton? At times, yeah, yeah, yeah. I should note that we will also be talking about uh, a very momentous clarinet part uh, later on when we mention Rhapsody in Blue. <laughs> it's, it's an iconic there part of the go. composition. Right. Um, you know, I, I want to add one more thing, which is that I appreciate on this album... They, you know, there's a lot of pretty intricate ensemble writing and, and things happening rhythmically that, you know, um, it's busy, you know, in a way that I really enjoy. But at the very end of this album, they play um, a song by Frank Foster, which was a staple of the Count Basie Orchestra, this piece called Shiny Stockings. Um,
generations and generations of like young uh, high school jazz bands have played this chart. Uh, I remember playing it as a kid. And the inclusion of it on this album feels like just a wonderful little palate cleanser. You know, it's like it's like the um, the little uh, chocolate that you get at the end of a, of a complex meal, <laughs> you know, like a rich and satisfying meal. And then you get this one very clear, sweet bonbon taste at the end, you know. You know, I had the honor to interview once Frank Foster wow. uh, for a series early in the early 2000s I did on uh, elderly jazz musicians. Mm-hmm. And we talked about, you know, his lack of royalties from that song because he was oh. young. He didn't know what he was doing. You know, he signed mm-hmm. it away, basically. But what I do remember was the joy he received in hearing so many different interpretations of the song. He was just extremely beside himself, proud of how it become a jazz staple. Yeah. And just part of the jazz canon. And I'll I'll never forget that the way his eyes lit up with that. Just the knowledge. And I'm sure he would have really enjoyed this one. Well, it, it absolutely is canonical. Uh, I'm sorry to hear that about the royalties, <laughs> but that's a very uh classic story from the from that era. Um and but so it goes. We are going to take a quick break. We will be right back. This message comes from NPR sponsor, the Capital One Venture X Card. When you book through Capital One Travel using the Venture X Card, you earn 10x miles on hotels and rental cars and 5x miles on flights, and you earn unlimited 2x miles on all other purchases. Plus, receive a $300 annual credit for bookings through Capital One Travel. The Venture X Card from Capital One. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com for details. On this week's Wild Card, we talk with Issa Rae about those moments where our lives could have gone another direction. Definitely wasn't supposed to be with that guy at all. At all. But I still think about it. I'm Rachel Martin. Issa Rae tells us how to make peace with the path not taken. That's on the Wild Card podcast from NPR, the game where cards control the conversation. I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts. Only from NPR. Okay, we're back. While we're in this jazz mode, I want to toss to another uh, really cool album out today by Mike LaDon's Groover Quartet. Mike LaDon is a uh, Hammond B3 organist, and the Groover Quartet is uh, his longtime ensemble, uh, specializes in soul jazz, and this album is titled Wonderful. And as you can hear, they are joined here by a gospel choir. So uh, when we talk about soul jazz, um, sometimes that term is uh, tossed around without consideration for its roots in the gospel church. And Mike LaDon, as somebody who's, who's playing an organ, um, he had the thought that, you know what, it's, it's time. It's time to sort of bring that tradition in dialogue with the one that I practice. Um, how did this strike you, Felix? 
You know, I'm glad that you're bringing in uh, first the clarinet and then the organ, right? And in in place of you know something led by a tenor or a trumpet or anything. No shade on the horn players, right? But mm -hmm. these, you know, the the idea of exploring these traditions, the jazz organ tradition and the clarinet tradition. You know, you hear something contemporary, and and it immediately, at least for me, makes me go back and think about some of the some of the the history. And 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 you know, I would imagine it's daunting to think about what can I bring to the jazz organ tradition. But again, like you said, putting it in the context of the of the gospel choir and its roots in you know the 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 organ comes from the church, right? Yeah. So it's it's so put it in that context. I think it's a, it's a brilliant move, smart move, a very creative move, and a very artful move, and a musical move on this record because mm -hmm. it just it just makes sense. It makes all the sense in the world. Yeah, you mentioned um, saxophonists and, and trumpeters, and you know I, I do feel obliged to point out that there are some some killer musicians in this band. <laughs> yeah. um, each each of them a band leader in his own right. <clears throat> so on tenor saxophone is Eric Alexander. Uh, on guitar, Peter Bernstein, and on drums, Joe Farnsworth. Um, and the gospel choir, we should note, the vocal parts are arranged by Carolyn Leonhardt, uh, who is a jazz singer and also uh, tours with Steely Dan. So there's really a lot of, there's a lot of talent both on the bandstand and behind the scenes on this album. And I want to point out one more thing, which is that, you know, in addition to teasing out the, the spiritual and musical connections between uh, the gospel church and, you know, the swinging jazz tradition. Mike is also interested in, in like, wordplay and sort of teasing out parallel meanings, you know. And so there's one example I love on this album. Um, they play a, a very simmering arrangement of John Coltrane's composition, Lonnie's Lament. Um, and this is, it ends up being not only a tribute to John Coltrane and the, the you know, the depth of his connection um, with the black church, but also a, um, a in memoriam for Dr. Lonnie Smith, um, one of the great masters of the Hammond B3 organ, huh. and someone who was, you know, a, a prime inspiration for Mike LaDon. So, so there's a kind of double homage there. It's good to know that there was a, another reference to the organist because it's I, I completely missed that and I'm glad you pointed it out. It makes total sense. Yeah, it's well, you know, it's funny. I, I missed it too on first listen and it was only, you know, delving in a little more. And then I thought, well, of course. <laughs> it's you know, but because it's a, a Coltrane composition and we think of him and you know, um but it, that's what I mean when I when I appreciate the the thoughtfulness that went into this album. You know, there there's a lot of there are a lot of gestures like that where where there are there's one layer and then you can dig a little deeper and find another layer. Speaking of layers, there are layers and layers 
upon layers on, in the next album that we are talking about. This is by the <laughs> Haitian-American singer-songwriter Natalie Joachet. The album is titled Ki Moon Ouye. So, Felix, I have been dying to know what you think of this album because um, it strikes me as the kind of statement um, that is accessing folkloric traditions from the Afro-Caribbean um, mm-hmm. with like the most contemporary uh, technologies and, and musical stylings. This feels to me like a kind of album that you encounter pretty often. <laughs> yeah, you, you know me well, man, and how much I enjoy it. I just love these artists that are breaking down traditions and ignoring boundaries and genres and all that. I lived in Miami for three years uh, in like the 98 to 2001 and heard a lot of Haitian music while I was there. It reminds me of the way... Uh, the Cubans and the Afro-Cubans used their traditions to explore and, and, and expand genres. Because there were uh, Haitian pop bands, they were Haitian world beat bands. There's so many layers, mm-hmm. so many things to explore with, just within that tradition and the various traditions within the Haitian culture. So yeah, you're absolutely right. That's what struck me from this record. It's just, like you said, the layers and the way that touches on all this stuff but then makes it sound completely new. There's like a personal excavation happening here. Natalie talks about how on this album, she uh, drew very clear inspiration from her grandmother and thinking about the experience that her grandmother had, the setting of her family's farm in Southern Haiti. Her grandmother passed away in 2015 uh, but she continued to uh, connect with her by listening to recordings she had made of old folk songs. But she didn't set about to recreate a kind of, you know, folkloric sonic tapestry. I mean, she's, if anything, she's pushing forward into um, a very 2024 kind of um, sound palette. Yeah, I don't like I said I don't know what it is with these young these young musicians but they I think that you know from from at least my perspective it's like we grew up with these going to tower records and and there were genres and boundaries and you knew where to go to find the dirt certain things right it was physically separated and laid out and very rarely did they mix and I think that now I don't know, maybe I'm, I'm, it's too easy of an analogy, but the, the fact that everything is digital and everything is available and then you can go anywhere and listen to anything, I think is, is this is a perfect example of how it impacts musicians making music now because we hear it in alt-Latino 
all the time. And it's the, my favorite part of the gig is discovering these people who are trying something new. And it's not just about uh, access to music. I mean, this is the way that we all exist in the world now. Yeah. You know, this this kind of like we're we're at every moment we are sort of plugged into this global network. And yet there's a real insistence on the part of an artist like Natalie to to be grounded, you know, to take the effort to to really literally think about, you know, where her feet are planted. And there's something from the press materials for this album that I, I found really um really inspiring. Um, so she's referring to the title of the album, and you know she says uh, that Kimun Oye, to ask somebody Kimun Oye uh, is more than a notion. Uh, any Haitian person knows this is a loaded question. It's not casual. So it means it it means who are you, but she says it also means whose people are you and which person are you presenting to the world today, and of course. Who owned these pieces of you before you were born? Um, now, those are I'm I'm quoting her there, but clearly these are the kinds of considerations that she brought to this album, um, and she she presents them in a really sort of dazzling range. There are so many striking moments on this album. Um, I want to queue up one of them, and then I'll I'll tell you why uh, it resonated for me. I feel like we could drop the needle on two different points kind of anywhere on this album and, and get this, but let's hear a little of a, a song called Tineg. Felix, it's probably worth saying, because we've been talking about Natalie um, in terms of the lineage that she's reconstructing, but um, going to this place with her her Haitian roots, um, you know, she had to make a certain effort because she has had a musical experience that's rooted in something quite different. You know, she's uh, she went to Juilliard and the New School, um, She's the co-founder of a duo called Flutronics, um, and she came up as a classical flautist. Um, she's now an assistant professor of composition at Princeton and you know, has had all of this experience in contemporary chamber ensembles. Um, and so you know, it's, it's interesting to think about the, the aspects of that experience as a conservatory-trained musician that she had to disentangle in order to get to this place, um, I don't think that she's rejecting any of that. I think she still fully lives within it. But, um, you, you know, you, you think about, like, the things you have to kind of brush aside or unlearn for the moment when you're deciding to make an album or a statement like this. Kind of goes back to what we were talking about with Gabby mm -hmm. at the beginning, about how in order to create yourself, you have to learn all this other stuff in order to really find out who you are musically. You have to indulge all your influences and then strip it all away and right. see what's left right. over. 
We have one more album to talk about before we move on to a lightning round and my conversation with Tom Heisinger about Rhapsody in Blue. Felix, what is our closer today? Okay, this is a group that I discovered in 2017 from their first record. It's a group called Les Amazons d'Afrique, the, uh, the Amazons of Africa. It's a collective, again, found, formed in, in Mali in 2014, and it was meant to represent and and showcase female musicians from Africa and from all over the continent. And their first album, like I said, in 2017, made my best of the year list because it was so, it came out of nowhere and really shocked my sensibilities. The new record is called Musal Dance. That's M-U-S-O-W. There's so much to unpack here. Of course, all the rhythm and the, and the different influences, but ultimately, it's a vocal album. It's about the vocals and the different vocalists from different parts of Africa and different cultures and different traditions and different languages and, and dialects. And I think that that is the magic to me, just the way that the mashups work sonically. The producers just have laid this like really amazing fundamental foundational groove underneath and sometimes very sparse sometimes very electronic and then sometimes west african drumming all, all mixed together I, I i just can't say enough things about this record because it brings so much to the table it is such a party and yeah, it is you know a party, one yeah. thing you know as you were describing and introducing the group um it's funny, I had almost a bit of discordant uh, feeling because when you talk about how this group came about and what it stands for and sort of all the, you know, it it really sounds like you're describing a kind of like global ambassador program, you know? Um, and it would be easy to assume that it that it carries that weight in a certain way, you know, that 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 it feels a little bit noble and somber, and, you know? And then it's so deft and it's so light and just makes you want to move. And like, I mean, it is it is incredibly well put together. And at no point in this album do you feel like you're taking medicine. <laughs> you <laughs> yeah, know? Right. It's, it's like, it's like this is just like the power of positivity yes. and like just it just it just rages. It's it's, it's so joyous. Right. Yeah. yeah. And I thought that, you know, we can in this little record party going out and dancing a little jig on the way out, a little two step on the way out. No, it's a fantastic, fantastic album. And I, I feel like, um, you know, at this this time of year, we all could probably use a little bit of that um, of that party energy. But like I'm already thinking about uh, how valuable this album will be when it's cookout season. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I can't wait to hear it blaring now. So here are some other albums out today, Friday, February 16th. Okay, J-Lo, Jennifer Lopez. You may have heard of her. You may have seen her commercial <laughs> during the Super Bowl. Right? <laughs> she has a new album out called This Is Me Now, a sort of sequel to her 2002 album, This Is Me Now. 
then. It's coming out alongside a film of the same name on Amazon Prime. J-Lo working all platforms. Always. <laughs> Hole in My Head is the new record from Laura Jane Grace, the singer who used to lead the punk group Against Me. It's another emotional, riff-heavy document that continues to lay bare her path through life and her growth as a songwriter. More riffs from the groove-loving Bristol, England-based rock group Idols. The group's new album is called Tank, and if you're looking for it online, it's spelled T-A-N-G-K. You know, like a solid backwards object such as a fish tank or an army tank, but with something a little bit off-balance. A little bit of tart stuff's in there. Next, the title of the last record has an extra letter. The next one is Missing Letters. It's called Blue Wave. B-L-U-W-A-V. This is by Granddaddy, the project of singer-songwriter Jason Lytle, who is a longtime favorite of our friend Robin Hilton. You know him from All Songs Considered, of course, and the previous iteration of New Music Friday. We love Robin about as much as he loves Granddaddy. (laughs) Probably more, man. Serpent with Feet has collaborated with your favorite, Bjork, Sampha, Kalela, Mick Jenkins, and more. His music has always been slightly experimental, influenced by classical and gospel sounds and teachings. But on his new album, Grip, you'll hear rhythms that sound closer to contemporary R&B than anything he's made before. The Black Art Jazz Collective is just what it sounds like. It is an ensemble full of talent and celebrating its 10th anniversary this year. So they have released a statement, Truth to Power, that acknowledges that decade of history. The group includes musicians like trumpeter Jeremy Pelt, tenor saxophonist Wayne Escoffery, pianist Xavier Davis, drummer Jonathan Blake. I could go on and on. This is a powerhouse ensemble and a great illustration of what the hard bop tradition has continued to yield. And to wrap things up this week, we have a rare treat, an expert whistler. Molly Lewis is her name, and you may have heard her instrument. Yes, her lips. On the soundtrack to last year's Barbie movie, her debut album, which has a strong throwback feel, is called On the Lips, of course. You gotta check it out. It's a little on the nose. We need to take a quick break, (laughs) but when we come back, we will talk about Rhapsody in Blue and what it has to tell us today. I will be joined then by Tom Heisinger, but I want to thank Felix Contreras for bringing the heat and all the insights. Thank you, Felix. Thanks, man. Always a pleasure. Let's do it again. Drake and Kendrick Lamar have been lobbing some serious accusations at each other. You've probably heard the diss tracks and wondered, what's just a low blow and what's actually criminal? I'm Brittany Luce, host of It's Been a Minute from NPR, and I'm getting into what's art and what's worthy of criminal investigation and who those accusations hurt the most on It's Been a Minute from NPR. 
We're back, and now I am joined by NPR's Tom Heisinger, who has been thinking and cogitating and ruminating, <laughs> what other synonyms can I come up with, about Gershwin's Rhapsody in Blue for quite a while now, and, and has some thoughts, and also had a really wonderful piece on Morning Edition on Monday, the 100th anniversary of Rhapsody in Blue. So we're going to unpack this. Hey, Tom. It's great to be here, Nate. I just have to say I'm really happy to be talking about this piece, which I feel is just like a really a milestone of American music and one that has held out so much promise, one that signifies so many elements of what American music could sound like and just what America could be and was a hundred years ago. And for me, it's really largely about merging and celebrating cultures and trying to make room at the table and for all the good and bad that's been said about it over the last (laughs) couple of weeks especially leading up to the anniversary I think the music is just singularly American and it we should be celebrating it. We will get into some of that discourse uh, momentarily but before we do maybe we should set the scene a little bit because when we talk about the centennial of this piece we look back to a, a pretty eventful premiere. Like, this was a kind of a legendary concert at Aeolian Hall on February 12, 1924. The Paul Whiteman Orchestra had commissioned George Gershwin to write this piece, and there's a little bit of drama around how that happened. There's also some drama about the the reception of the piece. So, Tom, bring us there. What can we say about that moment a hundred years ago? Well, first of all, fun fact for NPR fanatics, the Aeolian Hall today sits directly next to our New York Bureau of NPR. Mm. So it's still there. And it was a big deal. Paul Whiteman was this popular uh, band leader of the day, and he was eager to present a jazz concert. And Aeolian Hall was the only place that he could get on February 12th, Lincoln's birthday in, in uh, 1924. And jazz really was the pop music of the day, and it was just becoming a thing. And it was still considered, quote-unquote, exotic and even uncivilized by white society. So the concert that the Rhapsody premiered on, uh, Paul Whiteman wrote about it in his autobiography a couple years later. And I just want to read this quote because it's very interesting to me. He said, my idea for the concert was to show these skeptical people the advance which had been made in popular music from the day of discordant early jazz to the melodious form of the present, (laughs) which is a little weird because it makes you think that Whiteman was like trying to clean up or whitewash jazz for white audiences. That is an interesting quote. I think he sort of shows his hand a little because my understanding has always been that he had aspirations toward a kind of respectability for the music. And that mirrored what had been happening gradually with jazz in American culture. But he really wanted respect. And he wanted jazz to be understood not as the music of the dance hall, but as something that is worthy of a concert hall. And that was a really concerted ambition that he had. I I think it's pretty clear that with Rhapsody in Blue, the proof is in the pudding. And so it's interesting that right away you get this kind of highbrow, lowbrow schism that's built into Rhapsody in Blue as if jazz is inferior and classical was refined. And then you look at today, there are still plenty of barriers between popular culture and classical music today. And Gershwin, with 
the Rhapsody especially was one of the first and the most important to try to break down those barriers. And I think if you know any of the music that was on that original concert, there were 26 pieces all by white composers, and they were pretty tame, I would say. (laughs) So it was just, it's amazing to me to, to try to put yourself in that audience, which was star-studded, by the way. Sergei Rachmaninoff was there, Yasha Heifetz, Leopold Stokowski, the tenor John McCormick, famous actors and actresses. And it just blows my mind to think of what they were thinking when the Paul Whiteman Orchestra just launched into Rhapsody in Blue with that unforgettable opening. So, Tom, this is a recording from 1924. It's not from the actual hall, right? But very soon afterward. From June of 1924 in a truncated version with Gershwin at the piano. You know, Gershwin made other recordings of it uh, later, and uh, Paul Whiteman um, just ran with this piece and toured it all over the U.S. and all over Europe, and um, it was a huge hit. Yeah, he knew what to do with a hit. Tom, I want to point out something that is is often said about the Rhapsody and how it came together, but I feel like it's meaningful in the context of this conversation. First of all, Gershwin composed this piece in a hurry. He really just had a few weeks. And as the Whiteman Orchestra was rehearsing it for the concert, there's that famous opening clarinet trill. And in rehearsal... The Whiteman Orchestra's clarinetist, Ross Gorman, he played this really smeary kind of klezmerish glissando with the trill. And my understanding is that he did it in an exaggerated fashion to get a rise out of the band. And then the consensus in the room was like, no, that's great. That's great. Let's keep it. And this is this has remained one of the essential pieces of this of wherever you see this performed, you will hear a clarinetist trying to emulate that sound. And I love the idea that a fairly spontaneous decision by an individual musician ends up having this lasting impact on the piece. And that to me feels like part of the jazz DNA. I've listened to maybe 20 or 30 recordings in the last couple of months, and that clarinet smear at the open, it's different from every person who plays it. Mm-hmm. And it's probably a little bit different from every clarinetist, individual clarinetist, whenever they play it. That is the cool thing about it, for sure. It's fundamentally American. <laughs> you know, it's that, that individual voice and variations on that theme. And it's the whole idea that you're not, it it is an individual voice, but it's also the idea that it's one person in a combo of people making music and trying to make decisions and and having a little bit of freedom in an improv kind of way, uh, making their own contribution to the piece, which is, yes, that's jazz. Yeah. So as we think about the path of this piece from Gershwin's hand to the concert stage. It's meaningful, I think, to note that he wrote this four-hand, two-piano 
version of the piece initially, and then had a friend, the orchestrator, Ferde Groffet, expand it. And I bring this up because as we think about commemorating Rhapsody in Blue, my, my sort of Rhapsody season began last fall when I happened to see a performance in New York by the classical pianists Hélène Grimaud and Abu. And the two of them sat down and performed this four-handed arrangement. And it was spectacular. It was like really wonderful piano playing, of course, but it also really renewed my relationship to the piece. And it crystallized like the themes in their purest form. The closest that we'll get to hearing Gershwin sort of like what he was thinking as he was putting it down. And so I wondered if you could speak to that idea, this idea that it it really has this initial life as a piano piece before becoming the symphonic statement that we know. Well, (laughs) there's been so much hand-wringing about this aspect of the piece because the critics would like to say, well, you know, Gershwin didn't know how to orchestrate, so he didn't orchestrate it. He had to have somebody else orchestrate it. And the truth is that Yes, he did not orchestrate it. He never orchestrated a note of it, but he did give Ferdy Groffet, who was the kind of the crack arranger for the Paul Whiteman band, very detailed notes on his piano four hands versus two piano version, even notes about what colors to use and everything. The people that that freak out over the fact that he didn't orchestrate it, I think, can settle down a little bit, especially to your point, is that the melodies themselves and how he gets from one theme to another is, it's terrific. And the melodies are so memorable, so sturdy, that it doesn't really matter what version you listen to, whether it's the full orchestrated version that Ferdy Groffet made later, which is the one we usually hear in concert halls for a full symphony orchestra, or just a single pianist playing it not too long ago, I brought in Conrad Tao and Caleb Teicher, Conrad Tao the pianist and Caleb Teicher the tap dancer, to a tiny desk at NPR. And even in that version, the music is powerful. nail on the head, I think. These themes are so sturdy. And there's a quote that's often cited by Leonard Bernstein, where he talks about how you can take sections out and you can rearrange it into different orders and it still remains the rhapsody. And I think for certain sort of formalist classical minds, that's like a knock on the piece. But it actually is also a testament to just how strong these themes are as melody. I think it's a real feature, not a bug. And I think it's important to note that just how popular the Rhapsody is today, it certainly wasn't that popular for the critics at the time. For instance, Lawrence Gilman in the New York Tribune, the day after the premiere, so that'd be February 13th, 1924, wrote, 
how trite and feeble and conventional the tunes are, how sentimental and vapid the harmonic treatment under its disguise of fussy and futile counterpoints. So, <laughs> I love, I can just picture him twirling his mustache as he wrote that. And this, I don't know if you know this fun fact, but as a critic, I think you'll get a kick out of this. Paul Whiteman, the band leader, was later interviewed and said that there were, count them, 25 critics in the audience that first take. Can you imagine 25 critics at a single concert? 23 of them didn't like it, according to Whiteman. Only two did. Not only is that a meaningful statistic, but also of the two that did, I think one of them was the critic for The New York World who famously wrote that Rhapsody in Blue had, quote, made an honest woman out of jazz. And I think there's so much to unpack in that phrase, but it really speaks to what we said earlier, right? This yearning for respectability with the music. Mm-hmm. And there there are all kinds of um, tensions there in the the topic of race, right? It's In 1924, Duke Ellington was making some pretty incredible music uptown in Harlem. And Ellington still does not appear very often on the concert schedules of symphony orchestras. And there's a lot going on here. Gershwin and Whiteman are, they're trying to get, and initially struggling to get any kind of respect from the classical establishment. And you could argue that we are still on the back foot when it comes to that fight for composers of color, although things have been changing. And that point brings up something that the pianist and composer Ethan Iverson brought out in a recent kind of op-ed piece that he wrote about the Rhapsody in Blue from the New York Times, which caused a tempest in a teapot, and a little bit more on that in a moment. But one of his points was that he said the promise of a true fusion, he's talking about the fusion of jazz and classical music now, on the concert stage basically starts and ends with the Rhapsody in Blue. And this is a a very interesting point, and it's like Gershwin opened the door, but it was never fully opened. And it has a lot of implications for the trajectory of American classical music in this country. And it's something that author Joseph Horowitz has been writing about for quite some time now. And he tends to think that one of the problems was, like we were mentioning, the respectability of jazz and that the problem is jazz. Jazz is a threat. It's a threat to the pedigree which these American composers are attempting to establish. I feel that a defining trait of American classical music during these interwar decades was an antipathy to jazz. That is not true in Paris. That is not true in Berlin. And it's not true in Moscow and Leningrad. It's only true in the United States. So there you have it. There's a problem with jazz (laughs) in the country uh, of its origin. And it it certainly wasn't a problem with the Europeans because there, as you probably know, Maurice Ravel, the famous French composer, came over and he and Gershwin hung out in Harlem listening to stride piano. I think what Horowitz is trying to get at is that For a long time, Gershwin was never taken seriously in classical music circles in America. He was dismissed by the very composers who were best situated to kind of 
develop the pathway for American classical music. People like Aaron Copland and Virgil Thompson, the great critic and composer, and even later Leonard Bernstein really dismissed Gershwin as a composer. That fact, Horowitz would say, prevented the proper growth of a true American style of classical music, that classical music really should have had more solid roots in black American music, which was something that Antonin Dvorak, the famous Czech composer, talked about in 1893 when he was here setting up a conservatory of American music. And he basically said, hey, if you want an American school, you got the mother load right here. And it is yeah. the music of black Americans. Have at it. Yeah. <laughs> and Horowitz would say, nobody ever did. It's amazing to think of how many times we have seen, you know, various institutional gatekeepers policing the borders, and especially <laughs> when it comes to vernacular music, and especially when it comes to Black American musical expression. There's, a, there's another question I wanted to ask you about this, because Rhapsody in Blue strikes me as a, a great illustration of the idea that, that interpretation really is how a piece continues to live and and continues to connect with successive generations of listeners. Because you and I have each been in many concert halls where the Rhapsody was played and seen that real-time connection, right? And it's not just the content on the page, on the, on the score. So much of it is what happens in the hands of the interpreters. And this is like fundamental to how jazz works. And I think about Gershwin, composer of a theme like I Got Rhythm, which has been performed and recorded probably tens of thousands of times by jazz musicians. Or you think about a, a song of his like, Oh Lady Be Good. Some of the greatest jazz recordings that I can think of involve that song, whether it's Lester Young or Ella Fitzgerald. Right. And Gershwin is a part of that translation process. It's his material, but it's but it really lives in the hands of the interpreter. And this is not really how the classical world has organized itself. When we think about the Goldberg variations, yes, we love the different choices that a pianist can make, but it's not as if we feel like it's being like completely reinvented, right? Or am I, is this a false dichotomy that I'm drawing here? My, my initial reaction would be to say that the Rhapsody in Blue is like breakfast. It's like, it's hard to screw it up. It's that sturdy. <laughs> it's that basic. I guess what I'm saying is it's so good that it's really hard to mess it up. But, uh, and, but it has that relationship to jazz, which it should be different every night you play it. And it doesn't, it shouldn't really rest on the, the little black dots on the stave. It should be, it should have a feeling of, it should be freer than the Beethoven 7th. So Tom, when, when you say that the Rhapsody is, is basic and good, like breakfast, there's easily, it's a short step from there to the, the people who are criticizing it on those grounds. And this is one of the things Ethan has to say about the corniness of it. Yeah. <clears throat> what we're talking about here when we're talking about Ethan Iverson is this piece that pianist and composer Ethan Iverson wrote for the New York Times on the 26th of January. And he made some valid points about the Rhapsody in Blue and its legacy. But for me, it turned out to be its own worst enemy by using this clickbaity language and some kind of bomb-tossing mentality. And it sparked this kind of 
tempest of outrage. We should stay what that language is, too, because the, the headline, at least online, where most people read the piece, was the worst masterpiece, Rhapsody in Blue at 100. Um, so that's <laughs> that immediately sets the terms. Right, for, uh, and uh, he called it corny and Caucasian, and he referred to it as a... What was it? A, the che- a cheesecake that has clogged the arteries of American music. So, you know, with language like that, it's no wonder that folks uh, reacted angrily. And one of the rejoinders actually came in the op-ed pages of The Times from one of the opinion columnists, John McWhorter, who, you know, and that piece was headlined, No, Rhapsody in Blue is not the worst. So we have the rare instance where an, an op-ed is answered with a straight-up rejoinder. So for me, in Ethan's piece, the last line is really about his best, which he says, We are blessed and stuck with this piece, a flawed classic that exemplifies our nation's unsettled relationship with the originators of African-American music and technique. And I think that kind of if he would have used that as a motto for his whole piece, I think folks would have uh, reacted with less uh, vitriol. Um, we are at NPR Music, as elsewhere, we are well aware of the power of an SEO uh, <laughs> headline. <laughs> Sometimes you got to get those hooks in. I, I really would like to delve into this idea of, of appropriation in the piece, because it's something that you addressed pretty directly in your uh, story for Morning Edition as well. And you spoke with a couple of musicians who really have deep perspective on the matter. I was talking with uh, trumpeter and composer Terrence Blanchard recently, and he's someone who you can argue has followed in Gershwin's steps, someone who really straddles the borders between classical and jazz, being the first black composer to have a work staged at the Metropolitan Opera. And he says, too, it is a complicated topic. We have to be careful about, you know, when we talk about appropriating, you know, I, that, to me, that's more of a current term. When you say appropriating, it's like somebody who's taking music without giving credit to the originators, right? And I don't think Gershwin was that way. Were they taking the, the DNA from that? Of course. There is no question about it. But I don't think it was done with ill intent. Tom, I really appreciate Terrence's even-handedness and He's really a kind of, he has a diplomatic mindset here. But one thing that has been so moving to me to see, and I've, I've seen both of Terrence's operas performed at the Met, some of their power resides in the fact that he brings a, a range of Black musical expression into the context of the orchestra. And he doesn't dilute them or attempt to find some kind of compromise. It's the the real article. And sometimes it, it lands with a jolt, and sometimes it is functioning from within the orchestra. But you know, my point is that Terrence is bringing like the real information to these grand stages. And, and that to me is like a really crucial distinction and something that hasn't happened before. And it's a two-way street, really. It's like infusing jazz into classical and classical into jazz. And when I was talking with... Terrence about the whole idea of appropriation. And I stumbled across this article by Stanley Crouch, uh, writing for the New York Times in 1998, and flipping the tables a little bit, oddly, on the whole appropriation thing with Gershwin. Because by today's standards, Gershwin might be accused of cultural appropriation. And Stanley Crouch wrote, I'm quoting here, 
There's another irony when the subject of stealing comes around to Gershwin. The irony is found in the work of all jazz musicians who have used his songs as jumping-off points for classic improvisations. Either on his themes or the chord sequences he devised, the uncopyrightable chords of I Got Rhythm, by the way, have been used by so many jazz musicians that we have no idea how much larger the Gershwin fortune would be if his estate could lay claim to every use of that harmonic material. He continues, one could argue that black musicians have done much more profitable literal stealing from Gershwin than he did from them, which in his case amounts to nothing more than inspired borrowing. Look at what I've got. So there you have it. I got rhythm. I got music. I got my man. Who could ask for anything more? So that is an excellent point. And as someone who's heard so many instances where jazz musicians took Gershwin's intellectual property, shall we say, and transformed it into their own, uh, you know, mini masterpieces, it, it makes a lot of sense. But there's another thing I want to touch on, at least. And it's something that I thought about after hearing your piece on the radio earlier this week. We have so often talked about Rhapsody in Blue in binary terms. And I think Ethan's piece nudged us a little further in that direction in the conversation because there is so much to say about black and white cultural expression and jazz and classical. These are sort of binaries that we can work with. But there's a lot more happening in this piece. And when you spoke with Lara Downs, who is one of a few people who has a new version of Rhapsody in Blue out now, she made a really excellent point and put the piece in some context that I hadn't fully considered before. Yes, I was talking with Lara recently, and full disclosure, Lara and I work on this show that NBR has called Amplify, and she prefers to look at it more along the lines of it's not just a black and white thing. Here was jazz in its infancy. The musicians of all stripes were experimenting with it and trying to figure out how malleable it was, and the fact that Gershwin is was really just a sponge when it came to soaking up influences from other cultures. My sense is that Gershwin had these tunes in mind and, you know, set about connecting them. I guess there are five main themes. And what I actually love about the Rhapsody, I know that it comes under criticism sometimes for not being like well structured if you're thinking about the formal structure of a piano concerto or something. And it's certainly not that, and it's called a rhapsody. But he kind of gets from point to point really efficiently, and there's never a boring moment. So I think he did a beautiful job of that, especially when you think about all of the elements that he's trying to fold in. You know, when you think about this vast territory that he's trying to cover with all of these ideas that are coming from jazz, with Cuban rhythms, with this gorgeous romantic theme that's straight out of the 19th century. And he manages to pull them all together with an energy that never flags. And I think there's, yeah, there's kind of a drive, right? I don't know. It's hard to say because we know the piece so well. So I feel like you can't listen to it without waiting for the next thing. It's like listening to a Beatles album. <laughs> you, know, you know what the next song is. Um, but even even when all the tunes were new, I think there must have been this, this really compelling energy at that first performance that kept everybody kind of on the edge of their seats. Yeah, important to remember that George Gershwin was not that far removed from the immigrant experience himself. Um, and a Russian Jew with all of this experience on Tin Pan Alley. Um, and as, as Lara says, a sponge. And also someone who, it seems, 
had a an implicit point to make about the cacophony of American culture. And that's the point that Lara and the Puerto Rican saxophonist and composer Edmar Colon have made in their new version of the Rhapsody, the spinoff called Rhapsody in Blue Reimagined, where they make extra room for music of a variety of cultures, especially a lot of Afro-Cuban flavors in there. But they take the, the famous love theme and they make that site-specific. So when they made the debut recording in San Francisco, which has such a history with Chinese culture, they gave that love theme over to a trio of Chinese instruments and it when it comes around in the piece it's just magical i love that As we said before, you can do a lot with the Rhapsody in Blue, and it still really holds up. And I know that, Nate, that you've had a chance to talk with Marcus Roberts, who is a pianist who has himself really deconstructed the Rhapsody in Blue now for years in his own special way. Yeah, I had a, a really wonderful experience. First of all, talking with Marcus in our studio at WRTI. We had a, a great interview, and you can uh, watch and or listen to the entire half-hour interview at WRTI.org. But I also, you know, have to say that going to Verizon Hall to see Marcus and his trio performing with the Philadelphia Orchestra, led by Yannick Nézé-Séguin, I had a certain expectation. I knew that I would have a, a good experience, but I was pretty floored by the the synthesis that I witnessed. And some of it was similar to Laura's version of the piece, the rhythm is really foregrounded when Marcus Roberts performs the Rhapsody. And in his interludes and bridges, there's quite a bit of digression. And some of what we've been talking about, that the things that Gershwin had tilted his ear towards in the 20s, the stride piano of James P. Johnson and all of the sounds that were emanating from what was then the jazz community in Harlem, Marcus has a way of bringing those to the fore, but making them feel not like a a museum piece, but like a thrilling thing that's happening in this. It's like lightning striking. But I, I really loved how Yannick and the orchestra responded to all of that, to the cues that Marcus was giving, the cues that Jason Marsalis was giving from the drums. Um, and so the, the melodic content of the Rhapsody was very familiar and it, it sounded just as I expected it to sound, but it was also like radically transformed from one moment to the next. Um, and that to me feels like the promise of this piece a um, hundred years after its creation. And if you don't mind, Tom, I'd love to to let Marcus explain this a bit because he does so it, with such eloquence. Look, jazz and classical music need each other. There's no reason for these two worlds to mm-hmm. not coexist. It, it's ridiculous that they're mm-hmm. separate. You know, it's it's just as ridiculous as the separatism that happened in the United States between black and white people. It, it makes no sense. Mm-hmm. Um 
it doesn't mean that there aren't different cultural points of view between each music, but that's the thing. That's what makes bringing them together very special. And um, as much as people love Beethoven's music and you know the music of Wagner and all that, they do. But you've got to also you got to play some things that really do represent right now. I think we have to think of even this piece, Rhapsody in Blue, and not so much think of 1924, but yeah, think of 2024. Think of mm -hmm. uh, what what can a person do with this piece today if they hear it, yeah. right? And that's my goal is to give people something. They can decide what they want to do with it, but make it clear that it's for you and it's about you. Yeah, that, it's, that is so true. I love that whole attitude, that open attitude, that like the table is open for everybody to sit at. And what he does with the Rhapsody in Blue is it's true to the American form of jazz where it's Im Im improvisatory, it's inclusive, it's a group of people making something new every night. And I think these new versions that we're hearing, Edmar and Lara's, there's a new version of Rhapsody in Bluegrass by Bela Fleck. Like we were talking earlier, it's just, it's Gershwin opening the door saying that this music is, it's free and open to the public, so to speak. That's beautifully said. I, I think I think that is where we want to land this plane uh, with Rhapsody in Blue a hundred years after its premiere and still inspiring swooning responses in concert halls and impassioned debate on internet That's forums. Right. So there you have it. Um, Tom, thank you so much for joining us for this. I really enjoyed it. Oh, it's been a thrill. Thanks. That's it for today's episode. Thank you so much for listening. We hope that you will delve deeper into our conversations and our writings about Rhapsody in Blue. Tom's piece for Morning Edition can be found at NPR Music's main homepage, which is at npr.org music. You can find the pieces that I put together at wrti.org. This podcast was produced by Joaquin Kotler. We had impeccable editorial support from Jacob Gans. We'll be back next week. Why is everyone so obsessed with traditional wives or trad wives on social media? This week, we're talking about the viral videos of women making marshmallows and mozzarella from scratch and how behind the sheen of calm kitchens and cute fits, there's some interesting pessimism about our modern world. And that's worth digging into. Next time on It's Been a Minute from NPR. On NPR's Throughline. We cannot function for 24 hours without COBOL because it's in our smartphone, our tablet, our laptop. And as a consequence, the lives of the people living in that part of the Congo descended into just a catastrophe. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. The news can be disorienting, and it can be really hard to remember how we got here. That's why we started the Throughline podcast. Every week, we take you on a cinematic trip into the past to better understand the present. Listen now to the Throughline podcast from NPR.